0: further ado, we move on into week two of the Advent series. And let me just start off by saying the verses that oftentimes get eliminated in those Christmas songs are some of the most theologically rich verses that exist. I don't know if you noticed that in the song we just sang, this idea of bruising the serpent's head in us, that's deep. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning, connecting the dots to last week in the garden and what that implies For us in our very lives, we're going to talk about love this morning, the receiving of the gift of love, and it's going to come across a little differently than you may be inclined to think at first glance. I mentioned this last week, um, the season of Advent. Some of you didn't grow up in the church. You're like me, or maybe you grew up in a less liturgical setting, and so perhaps you come in and you go, I don't even know what that word means. What is Advent? Why does the church um, celebrate this season uh, and this time of the year coming together as God's people gathered Since the 4th century A.D., the church has celebrated this thing called Advent. It's a celebration that starts the fourth Sunday before Christmas and leads up to uh, its final manifestation at Christmas. And so last Sunday marked the beginning of Advent 2016. We lit the first candle last week. The word advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival. And so this time of year is all about the celebration of the coming of, of the Savior, Jesus, into the world. His arrival. The celebration of his first coming and the hopeful anticipation of his second coming. Because we know that everything is not as it should be. It's the constant reminder in the midst of all the busyness, in the midst of all the distractions, that Jesus really is the Savior of the world. That he's better than all the tinsel. He's better than all the trinkets. He's better than all the toys. He's the greatest gift that that we've ever been given. At great cost to himself, he purchased our redemption. He purchased our reconciliation. Christmas is the the celebration of the second person of the Godhead clothing himself in flesh. It's what theologians refer to as the doctrine of the incarnation from the Latin word meaning becoming flesh. We read about that in John chapter 1. We just uh, read that together as the church. That the God who created everything had to be taught how to spell the very things that he had made. He had to be taught his own name. That the God who carved mountains and valleys in the beginning of creation had to be taught how to work with wood. That the most exalted being in all the universe entered the slums of human history by way of the feeding troughs of Bethlehem. Talk about the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. That the God of Christianity is not a God who's removed from the story he's authoring, but rather he became a character in that very story. That's amazing. Emmanuel, God with us, the eternal condescension and humility of the God of all creation. So last week we did spend some time in the Garden of Eden, the place where God first made that unwavering promise to send a hero to rescue us from sin. The future baby in a manger, the future crucified Savior. The story of Christmas is all about the fulfillment of that promise that God made in a garden so long ago. The, the light entering into the darkness of our broken world and the humble trappings of a smelly stable surrounded by blue-collar field workers and pagan astrologers and, and court magicians. Which is God's way of saying, I'm not here for those who think they have it all together. I'm here for the rejects and ragamuffins. I'm here for the sinners and tax collectors. I'm here for the pagans and the prostitutes. Jesus came to give hope to the hopeless. He came to pour out his love on the unlovable. He came to give joy to the despairing, peace to the anxiety-ridden. That baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger is the one who would come to deliver the death blow to the dragon. A baby resting in a feeding trough in Bethlehem would go on to sign the check for our ransom with his very own blood. Christmas is, is not ultimately about the tinsel, about the trinkets, about the toys. And so we can choose to put our hope in those things or we can enjoy them knowing that they will disappoint us if we put our ultimate hope in them. Because our ultimate hope is meant to be in, uh, put in the one who saved us and his name is Jesus. He came to rescue us. And so this morning, we get an opportunity to connect the dots between hope, which we talked about last week, and love. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, uh, it might surprise you to see how those dots are connected. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Malachi chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you. You can open up that Bible to this morning's passage. Uh, The best way to find the book of Malachi is to find the New Testament, the book of Matthew, and then to go backwards, hit rewind just a little bit and you'll be there. It's the last book of the Old Testament. We'll be in chapter two, verse 17, and we'll work our way through chapter three, verse four. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll get to work this morning. God, thank you. Thank you for moving your people for generosity. Uh, thank you for uh, moving this church forward for for growing us we are we are still a toddler we are three years old um, and that means that very much uh, we we uh, look like a rocket ship trying to get off the ground with a lot of fire and rubble um, there, there's a lot of messiness in this church plant but there is uh, a lot of uh, gospel-centered beauty that I see when I look at what you're doing uh, in and through this uh, expression of your bride so thank you for this church Uh, Thank you for these people. God, I pray in the coming moments that we have together as we look at this passage of Scripture that you would open our eyes to see a more comprehensive love that you have for us than maybe we brought in to this building this morning in terms of our understanding of your love. God, I pray that you would help us to see uh, the fullness of what your rescue mission was about this morning. God, I do pray that you would crush the serpent's head within us, that you would purify a people for yourself. Holy Spirit, would you awaken our hearts this morning, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear that which you would have for us. God, we pray that ultimately you would conform us into the image of your son this morning by the power of your spirit. And we lift these things up in his name. Amen. All right, the book of Malachi. Who studied that one recently? We're we're a church that believes context is important. Uh, We don't believe in haphazardly slapping Bible verses onto coffee mugs or bumper stickers without thinking about what surrounds them. Uh, We believe that every word in Scripture is written in the context of a paragraph. Every paragraph is written in the context of a chapter, and so forth and so on. And so if we're going to dive into a, a passage of Scripture found in the book of Malachi, it'd be helpful to know a couple things about the book of Malachi, right? The book of Malachi was written about 450 years before Jesus showed up on the scene, um, not long after Daniel died. And so if you were around for the last few weeks of the Daniel series, you may remember that those who returned from uh, from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem uh, when Daniel was an old man experienced a lot of disappointment. There was no Davidic king to lead God's people. There was a temple, but it, it wasn't uh, the kind of temple that that held the same kind of glory and radiance as the temple that Solomon had built in his day. Israel was not self-governing, but rather was under the governance of the Persian Empire. People who lived between the days of Daniel and the days of Jesus uh, still talked about being in exile because all of the glories, the fulfillments of the promises didn't seem to be coming to bear uh, with with the fullness that they had anticipated. And so many of God's people became cynical. They became apathetic. They became complacent both in their uh, attitudes toward God and their faithfulness to God. Their worship became cultural in nature. They began to move toward a dead orthodoxy, a lifeless religion, a going through the motions. Any of you who have lived in the South long enough, does that sound familiar? What was once deemed the Bible Belt has now been deemed the boneyard of Christianity. They were going through all the religious stuff, but their hearts were far from God. The book of Malachi is a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call to spiritual zombies, walkers, you might say. Um, It's a call to repent of unfaithfulness and to return to covenant renewal. The book starts out with this declaration of God's faithfulness, his deep love for his people. And then there's a shift that takes place into this section that has to do with God's rebuke. This declaration that I've been faithful to you, but you have not been faithful to me. The priests are corrupt. The people's hearts are not in it. Their worship is hollow. It's empty. It's ritualistic. And so after God declares his covenant faithfulness and Israel's covenant unfaithfulness, the book then shifts into this third and final section, which is where we pick up the story, this declaration of the coming Messiah and the messenger who will pave the way for him. It's the declaration of the coming Jesus. If you pick up in verse 17 of chapter two, it says this. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say... How have we wearied him? Well, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of of justice? So again, things are not working out the way God's people had thought they would. And so they do what most human beings do when things don't go their way. They gripe and complain. I don't know about you. That's what I do more often than not. Where's God's sense of justice? All the bad guys seem to be getting the blessings. Why does it work out well for these people? And yet I'm seeking to be faithful and I'm experiencing all the suffering, which is a little bit self-righteous if you think about it, right? We're the good guys. God owes us. I do that all the time. God, look at what I've done for you. I've kind of put you in my debt. And if you don't come through, I just might have to waive my self righteous fist in your face. I might even have to set aside obedience altogether, because after all, if there's nothing in it for me as it pertains to living an honorable, obedient life, well, you can see how quickly the human heart can shift from loyalty to apathy to depravity, just like that. God's people had had expected a rebuilt temple with the fullness of God's glory, Similar to the way God had filled the tabernacle in Moses' day and the temple in Solomon's day. And that just wasn't the case. And so the people complain, And God responds to the, those complaints in verse 1 of chapter 3. Through the prophet Malachi. He says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, verse 1. All about Christmas. Behold, I send my messenger, one who will prepare the way before me. That's a reference to John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way for Jesus. We know that because Jesus tells us so in Matthew chapter 11. He actually quotes Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and references John the Baptist in relation to that verse. Which means that if you look at verse 1, the one who will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Remember we talked about last week, God's people in the Old Testament longed for the hero that was promised in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. They're constantly looking for the reality that all those shadows that make up your Old Testament are pointing toward. They're they're constantly asking the question, is is that him? Is that the hero? Every time someone comes that, that looks to be heroic in nature, in stature, is that him? the one who will slay the dragon and and lead the way back to Eden, back into the presence of God. And this would have been no less true for the people in Malachi's day, maybe even more so. They're the closest to the fulfillment of the promise that we get in the Old Testament. And here in verse one, God affirms that indeed that same promised hero from Genesis 3 is coming. The the declaration is made yet again. You you know what's amazing? In, In Luke's account of the Christmas story, um, I've been reading a book by Tim Keller called Hidden Christmas. It's fairly new. It just came out about a month or two ago, I think. And he points out all the, the hidden nuggets and all these uh, Christmas passages that we've read time and time again. I think this is one of those. Um, we're told that after Jesus was born, he was brought up to Jerusalem and presented at the temple. Now think about that. The people are waiting uh, in the wake of the exile for God's glory to be manifest and to fill the temple in a way that it never had before. You think the people in Jesus' day connected those dots? A more glorious manifestation of God's presence than has ever filled the temple. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ is standing in the temple. The whole fullness of deity clothed in flesh, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. That's pretty amazing. Now... If we stop there with verse 1, we, we'd be left with a, a fairly cookie-cutter Christmas message, right? The, another Old Testament declaration of the coming Messiah, the future baby in the manger, the future crucified Savior, the one who will take on a bruisable body so that he can die for the sins of his people, the one who will slay the, the darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death, the one who will sign the, the ransom for our sin and, and, and put his stamp on that check in his very blood. But that's not the end of God's declaration. That's not how the book of Malachi ends. Verse 1 declares that the hero will come. But look at verse 2. Staggering. It says this. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? That verse, it's like the jukebox just stops. Just, you know, like, what is that? Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? I thought we were talking about a block party. God. So we celebrate when we think of Christmas. This sounds a little heavy. What is it about the Messiah's coming that would cause the Lord to declare these words? Look at the rest of the passage that we're going to look at this morning. Verse 2 through verse 4. Look at what it goes on to say. For he, the coming hero, is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, in other words, the priests, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem, that is God's people, will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Remember, God's people have become cynical in this moment. They become apathetic. They become complacent. Nothing's going according to to plan their hearts aren't in it their worship has become empty ritualistic hollow and so God through the prophet Malachi brings this rebuke and it's really this declaration look at how much God loves you now here's the thing when you read verses two through four my guess is that you're probably not thinking oh the unfathomable riches of God's love That's probably not where your mind's going. That's probably not where your heart is going. We're talking about two word pictures that communicate an arguably painful process. We have this language of God being like a refiner, a refiner's fire. There's a going through the crucible for God's people, so to speak. That second image, uh, this this cleansing with fuller soap, okay, that I've heard, commentators say, well, it's like God's taking a spiritual bar of ivory and he's just cleaning you up. But that's not what that means. If you go to to any sort of Bible encyclopedia and look up this process of fulling, of cleansing garments, what you find is that it involved either a treading, a stamping on the unclean garments with one's feet in a tub of water. That's one way you could do it. Or the other option was to beat the garments on a flat stone with another flat stone or a wooden paddle. so we're not talking about a bubble bath here. That's not what's going on in Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. What God is saying is that he will take his people through the fire and flame. That he will break out the paddle if necessary, if need be. And what I'm arguing this morning is that when God says that, he's saying, look at how much I love you. Now, the reason it's hard to wrap our minds around that, I think, is because we reduce love to less than what it actually is. We, we need a more comprehensive, more robust, more biblical understanding of love, and in particular of God's love. Does God love us so much that he would send his son to die for us? Yes and amen. No question about it. As the apostle John says so eloquently, 1 John chapter 4, it's God's love made manifest in the world as, he, as we know it, that he would send his son to die for us. That God can't fathom a storyline in which He doesn't die in the place of sinners who deserve to do the dying. That's love. But God doesn't love us enough to simply convert us and send us on our way. He loves us so much that, like a good father, He will not allow us to be crushed by our own complacency. Our God is a refining fire. At least a dozen times in the scriptures, God is referred to using this sort of word picture, this imagery. That he's not just on a mission to ransom a people for himself, but to refine a people for himself. In other words, he's not just out to convert you, but also to conform you, Romans 8, into the image of Jesus Christ himself. That's unbelievable. That he's on a, a mission to melt away all of the impurities in you so that you might radiantly shine for his glory. Now, let me throw out a little disclaimer. If you're not a Christian in this room, this passage is incredibly dangerous for you. The worst thing that you could do is uh, to walk away viewing refinement as some sort of means of salvation. It's not. In fact, that's backwards thinking according to the scriptures. You can never refine yourself enough to earn the love of God. Again, Jesus didn't come for those who think they have it all together. He came for the rejects and ragamuffins. Going back to last week, Christmas is an indictment before it's a joy. It's a declaration that we need to be saved from something, namely our sin and ourselves. That we could never claw our way back to God. We could never claw our way back to Eden. We needed God to bridge the gap that we could never bridge ourselves. Christmas is the celebration that he has. Christmas is the celebration that we don't have to claw our way to God. Christmas is the celebration that we can stop trying to impress God by checking all of our moralistic boxes in an effort to earn his love. Jesus lived the sinless life that we can never live. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. Our sins were put upon him. He was punished in our place. Christmas is not the celebration of self-rescue. It's just not. Christmas is the celebration of Jesus, our rescuer. What God is declaring here through the prophet Malachi is simply that his rescue plan is far more comprehensive than we may think or even like. But the baby lying in a manger is about so much more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. If you're a Christian, what this passage tells us is that we are like gold. What does that mean? I wrestled with that. Um, There's some who would take a passage like this and go, well, you're an image-bearer of God. And so when he looks down, he sees something inherently beautiful about you, and so he wants to brush the dirt off. And I do think that's true, that we are all made in the image of God, and so we're made with with great dignity, value, and worth. But there's something problematic about that in terms of this passage because God is not speaking to humanity at large. He's speaking to his people. This is a passage on sanctification. And so what I think is a little bit more helpful is maybe to come at it like this. When God looks at you and he sees gold, here's what I think he sees. I think he sees the declared righteousness of his son gifted to you. That when Jesus died he took your sin upon him as Martin Luther calls it the great exchange Jesus gets your sin you get Jesus's perfect righteous record it's the worst trade ever worse than any trading of desserts at a middle school lunch table you just can't possibly raise the bar to what took place when Jesus took your sin and gave you his righteous record and so you're now declared righteous I don't know about you I woke up this morning I don't feel very righteous It's kind of like when you get married. I've given this analogy before. The two are declared to be one flesh. And then you just for the rest of your life go, man, I'm I'm not feeling like one flesh yet. And and, and so it it just takes years and years and years and years. And then over the course of time, you you functionally are becoming what you've been declared to be, one flesh. So that by God's grace, when you're old and gray and, and your spouse dies, it doesn't take you long to go after him because you're so knit together. In the same way, when you become a Christian, you're declared righteous, and then functionally for the rest of your, your life, you become what you've been declared to be. And this passage tells us a little something of how that happens, of God's role in seeing that to its fulfillment. That he looks down, and like any gold digger, he sees a dirty rock. But underneath it, he sees the beautiful righteousness of his son. And so he gets to work brushing the functional unrighteousness off of us for the rest of our lives. That God is committed to removing every impurity in you. That's how much he loves you, Christian. Now let me share a quote with you that I think will help to make sense of why God's purifying work doesn't always seem so loving from our vantage point. J.I. Packer says this. He says, God hates the sins of his people and uses all kinds of inward and outward pains and griefs to wean their hearts from compromise and disobedience. Still, he seeks the fellowship of his people and sends them both sorrows and joys in order to detach their love from other things and attach it to himself. Now, at first glance, does that not seem absurd Am I the only one in this room who thinks that sounds crazy when they first look at it? That you're telling me God loves me so much that he would send me sorrows? That's probably not the message being preached from a lot of pulpits this morning. I don't know about you. I get the joy aspect of it. That one makes sense to me. But the sorrow aspect, why would God do that? And the answer is this. Sometimes it takes sorrow to pry our grip off of lesser things that cannot ultimately satisfy us. If it takes hurling a hurricane at you, Jonah, to win you back, God loves you enough to hurl a hurricane at you. Remember that Elizabeth Elliot quote from the Daniel series? God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus? That quote frustrates my soul. It's that kind of perspective that I think makes sense of passages like James chapter 1, verses 2-4, which say this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, those trials that you encounter in life, relationally, financially, physically, spiritually, and on and on we could go. Those are the means by which God removes just a little more dirt in order that you might shine. Those trials are the refining fire of God's love, you could say, melting away the impurities. Or how about Romans 5, verses 3 through 5? It says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here we see the connection between hope, which we talked about last week, and love. Going back to last week, if if that message at all pricked your heart, that message on hope, it's likely because you've experienced the refining fire of God's love. It's likely because you've had lesser objects of affections pried from your heart's grip. And you know a little something more of the hope in God that doesn't disappoint. A hope that won't put you to shame, as Paul says in Romans 5. That hope and love are are inextricably connected. That God loves you so much that he will pry the idols right out of your heart's grip in order to replace them with himself. And that's good news. That he will take the functional saviors right out of your hand, painful as it may be, if it means opening your eyes a little bit more to the beauty of the one true savior. Some of you had no idea that God loves you that much. Enough to take you through the refiner's fire for the sake of your own joy. This is one of the reasons I think so many people walk away from the faith. I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for Jesus my ransom, not Jesus my refiner no thank you, all of a sudden things get hard, right? And and we begin to question everything. We begin to question, is God really in control? Does God really love me? Is this really what the Christian life is about? And sometimes pastors and Christians do a poor service to people prior to their conversion by telling them that it's nothing more than a get out of hell free card. We fail to see that Christmas is about so much more than our, our rescue, Jesus came not only to save us from sin's penalty, but also sin's power. Yes, he came to ransom us. Merry Christmas. But he also came to make us clean. Christmas is about purity just as much as as it is about anything else. And so when when you look down on the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, you're meant to see, yes, the one who will provide your justification. But you're also meant to see the one who will provide your sanctification. If you can embrace that, and I'm throwing myself in that category. If we can embrace that truth, that perspective, it'll radically change the way we face difficulties in life. It'll radically change the way we respond when God pries our heart's grip from lesser things. I mean, that had to be what was going on in the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul, right? When he declared everything to be rubbish compared to Jesus, what happened to that dude that he could say something that crazy? I would argue only the refining fire of God's love can, can cause a man to make that kind of declaration. That somewhere along the way, he must have had lesser things pried from his heart's grip. And seen in the midst of that refining work that Jesus really is the greatest treasure in all the universe. I don't know about you, but I, I'm oftentimes really quick to point the finger at the devil when things don't go my way. You do that. Man, the devil's really on my back this week. This is happening and that and the other thing, and Satan's really coming after me. And sometimes I think that's true. But sometimes I think we label as spiritual attack what is really spiritual surgery on God's part. That God is working to deeply remove the idols of our hearts. As Matt Chandler, president of our network, pastor out in Dallas, says so eloquently. God will break the hand that refuses to let go of what will harm it. That's strong. That somehow the breaking of the hand is an act of God's love, according to Malachi chapter 3. A father's love for his beloved son or daughter. Make no mistake, Satan will never strip you of your idols. That is a surgery he will never perform. He is perfectly comfortable with you putting your hope in lesser things. Only God will perform that surgery. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves me. I love what verse six goes on to say. If you skip ahead, it says this, "'For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed.'" Verse 5 tells of a very different kind of fire, a consuming fire for those who fail to turn to Jesus for rescue. Verse 6 is God's declaration that the refining fire of his love will never consume his children. That when God does that, when he brings about his refining fire in our lives, it's never an act of condemnation. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. This, this passage, and specifically verse six, is God's way of saying, don't mistake purification for condemnation. They are two very different things. I will never consume you, the Lord says, but I will not stop in my relentless commitment to make you pure. I will not stop in that relentless commitment. So let me ask you this morning, what, what do you bring into this place Some of you are feeling the refiner's fire of God's love a a little bit more readily in this season of life. Um, Maybe even as you woke up out of bed this morning, you woke up to sickness, maybe anxiety, maybe fear, maybe depression, maybe a sense of aimlessness, maybe the feeling that God is distant. I've been reading a few Advent devotionals coming out of last Sunday, and one of the entries that I came across this week was uh, written in the form of a prayer uh, by a German Jesuit priest and theologian by the name of Karl Rahner. I I cannot declare from this stage that I agree with this man's theology. I really don't know a lot about this man at all, but I want to read to you these words. They're, They're formulated into a number of questions that he's wrestling with as he thinks about Uh, The the incarnation, as he thinks about the the season of Advent, at one point in the prayer, he, he asks these questions. Maybe you can relate to these words. He asks, are you the eternal Advent, God? Are you he who is always still to come but never arrives in such a way as to fulfill our expectations? Are you the infinitely distant one who can never be reached? Are you only the distant horizon surrounding the world of our deeds and sufferings? The horizon which, no matter where we roam, is always just as far away. Anybody feel that way about God? Anybody struggling with that this morning? You go, "Uh, those questions, man, yeah, those resonate with me based on where I am. That God is the horizon, always out of reach, just, just beyond our grasp, abandoning you when things get hard. This morning's passage is an unwavering declaration that God is closer than you think. That God has not abandoned you. That he's working to fulfill the promise that he made in a garden so very long ago. A promise not just to ransom you. A promise not just to hand you a get out of hell free card. But a promise to purify you and to make you happy in him whatever it takes. A promise not to rest until your joy is truly rooted in the only being who can satisfy you that's God's gift just as much as anything else God gives you so merry christmas church the question is do you want to receive that gift will we trust that that God is not giving us the gift of black socks when we read malachi chapter 3 this is the real question will we trust that he knows what he's doing will we tr- will we go so far as to trust that malachi 3 Just might be the Red Rider double barrel carbine action range model air rifle hiding behind the tree. Charles Spurgeon, I don't know if you know this, Spurgeon dealt with clinical depression. That's crazy to think about. Charles Spurgeon once said this He said, God is too good to be unkind, and he's too wise to be confused. If I cannot trace his hand, I can always trust his heart. We must not make the mistake of thinking that we can celebrate the miracle of the incarnation without embracing the miracle of our sanctification. They go hand in hand. The one who took on a bruisable body in order to sign the check for for our ransom in his own blood did so, according to Titus 2, in order to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That your refinement, your sanctification is part of the rescue mission. Going back to Genesis chapter 3 in a garden so long ago. It's part of the wonder of Christmas. That when, when we spend time thinking on Christ's coming, his arrival over the course of the next few weeks, we're meant to think about how he is conforming us into his very image. What that work looks like in our lives because that's part of the Christmas story. But God loves you so much that he doesn't just convert you and leave you on your own. That's good news. Rather, he's committed to making us glad in him. And so what Malachi chapter 3 really declares is that no one can escape the fire. The question is, will it be a consuming fire or a refining fire? You can't escape the refining fire of God's love. You just can't. But you can look for traces of it. And you can trust God in the midst of it. Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He gave us Jesus, the hope of Christmas. Anything else he gives us is for our good. In a moment, we're going to take communion. We do so here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup. The bread representing the broken body of Jesus. The cup representing... His shed blood. Again, if you're not a Christian this morning, I would implore you to not walk away with an unbiblical backwards view of salvation. That that you don't leave this place going. I need to get a little bit more refined. I need to break out the spiritual soap and get to work cleaning myself up before the Lord. That's not what the gospel declares. The gospel declares something so much better than that. The gospel declares that you come to God with nothing more than your sin and the empty hands of faith and say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, I want that promise in a garden so long ago to be for me. And I invite you this morning to to respond in that way if you're not a Christian. And if you are, I would invite you, and I'm gonna do this over the course of the next few minutes myself, to, to just sit for a moment and to wrestle with the question, God, where might I If I open my eyes just a little wider, see the refining fire of your love at work. Where where might I see that Jesus came not only to slay uh, Satan, the dragon, but as we sang about, the the dragon that is within me. Where do I see you doing that? And and, and will you help me to to gain a new perspective, to see the wonder of Christmas as, as going beyond my ransom to my very refinement? beyond my conversion to my very being conformed to the image of Christ. Let's spend some time doing that, and then let's let's come and receive the bread and dip it in the cup and celebrate the fact that Jesus has done what we could never do. Um, he lived the perfectly pure, refined life that we could never live, and he died our death. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.